Joel is uh, kind of a, a smaller book, but it's, uh, it's a really a good book. The memory verse that we're going to be working off of today is Joel 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As I said, it's a small book. It's only got three chapters. Joel is really vague in his writing. He only gives us just a few details about himself. Um, Joel was a common name, sort of like Mark or Bob in today's world. Um, But he's one of the first prophets. And his name means Jehovah is God. Joel... In his first verse, he does give us one detail, that he's the son of Pethuel, which doesn't mean hardly anything at all. It's speculated that Joel was a priest by the way he wrote. Um, The timeline for him uh, writing was uh, uh, around 850 to 800 B.C. in that that area. We're just speculating. Um, The location of his writing is probably around Jerusalem because he does refer to Jerusalem. Um, So if we're in that 850 to 800 B.C. timeline, that would be before the destruction of the temple, before uh, the Jews are carried off into Babylon in Daniel's time. And he probably knew Elijah and Elisha, maybe he did. So hopefully that gives you just a little bit of an idea of where we are with Joel. And I've entitled the the message today, The Day of the Lord is Upon You. And I think this is an overriding theme. As we work through it, you'll, you'll see that. As you can imagine, Joel's prophecy at the time when he wrote this, uh, being he was one of the first prophets, was uh, not normal for the people to hear. So, like in today's world, you know, people would have gone, oh, who is he? Why should we listen to him? And then, you know, they blew him off. Whereas some people were maybe going, oh, maybe we better listen to this guy. Maybe he's got something to say. Joel's writing was prophetically accurate for his time. However, Joel's prophecy also clues us in on the end times that haven't even happened yet. So that's relative to us today. If I were to ask you what book of the Bible kind of talks about the day of the Lord, you might say Joel, but you also will probably say Revelation. And we're going to hit on that in a little bit. So if you would, if you'll turn in your Bibles, I didn't get the number for the page uh, for uh, your pew Bibles, but turn to Joel chapter 1. Otherwise, uh, the scripture will be up on the screen too. But let's pray to the Lord before we start. Our Heavenly Father, it is an honor and a privilege to be talking about your word and and discussing it. And Lord God, we do look forward to the day that you will return and you will make things all right. And Father, we look forward to that. Father, I just ask your blessing upon our time today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Joel uses prophetic imagery by Uh, starting out uh, describing uh, a locust invasion. So when Pastor Gary told me I'd be talking about locusts and bugs, it's like, wow, that is great. That's right down my alley. If you know me, um, I have a bug collection. And uh, so 
I was going to bring them here today, with, but that would probably gross you out. So I did the next best thing. I brought some pictures. So here's a picture of my, one of my cases. And these are all pretty much Minnesota grown. The next picture, Jeff. There's some more. Yeah. And then the next picture, Jeff. Some of my most precious bugs in my collection are bugs that were given to me by people. This is a bug that was given to me by my fifth grade teacher. Okay? So that makes this bug about 50 years old, right? Well, this is a cicada or cicada. If you know anything about cicadas, their larva larva stays in the ground for about 17 years. So, realistically, this bug is about 65 years old. Isn't that cool? So, Joel's prof- starts off his prophecy by telling about a plague of locusts or grasshoppers. So, crunch, 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 munch, munch, munch. They eat everything. They eat everything. So, let's read from Joel chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. What the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. So next picture. Yeah, there they are. They eat everything. Kind of gross, right? All right, next picture. Yeah. So, it wasn't just one type of locust that came, but many different types of locusts. And in the end, they ate everything. I'm thankful that here up in northern Minnesota, we don't have many grasshoppers. They just don't survive our cold. But I remember one summer, probably about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, we planted, my dad and I planted a row of uh, evergreen trees in our field for a windbreak. And that summer, the grasshoppers were bad, and they ate every single tree, every single one. The picture Joel is painting is of complete and utter devastation. The grasshoppers have eaten everything. There is nothing but stalks and stumps. And not only is it a plague of locusts, but it's also a drought that's going on at the same time. In verse 12, it says... The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, and the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Then verse 20, it says, The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks have dried up. The condition is terrible. The locust plague and the drought are affecting everyone. The animals, farmers, the plants, the priests, the whole land is under this curse. I believe that the locust in invasion and, and trout, uh, drought are, are symbolic of what is going to happen to the nation of Israel. There's no doubt that the people are, are going to have to suffer a great hardship in the future. Did you catch that Joel is sounding the wake-up call? To the, to the people of Judah, he says, Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. He's sounding the alarm. 
He's pulled the alarm and the siren is blaring and he wants everyone to know. One thing that's really interesting if you go through the whole chapter of Joel is that he doesn't indicate why this curse is happening. He doesn't indicate this is the people's sin or why it's happening, only that they are to prepare for something very terrible. This is unlike some of the other prophets. For example, um, in Hosea. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, as uh, Pastor Evan was preaching on last week, this one says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up. All who live in the land waste away. However, from looking into history, we know that the Israelites had indeed turned away from God at this time. So in Joel's case here, we're hearing the end results of the people's sins. Again, not who or what, but everyone is affected. Everyone has to pay the consequences for the, the, what they've done wrong, right down to the plants and the animals. Joel's prophecy has little to do with locusts and that invasion, but everything to do with God's judgment. He said, give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. And then in verse 15 and 16, he says, and cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Joel's sounding the alarm. He's saying, wake up. Devastation is upon you. Wake up. The day of the Lord is upon you. Chuck Swindoll said about these passages, he made an interesting comment. He said, there is something unique about when calamity strikes a nation. Calamity has a way of not hardening people, but softening them. Many times, isn't that true? When someone high and mighty is, uh, something eventually is going to happen to them. We often say, it knocked them off their high horse. Sometimes we say, someone needs to knock them off their high horse. But isn't it cool to see how when people change, many times they become a kinder, gentler person? In this case, hardships of life become that trigger that helps that person change for the better. Now, of course, this doesn't always happen. Sometimes people go the opposite way and get even higher and mightier, and they become more spiteful and, and bitter. I think a good example of how a nation was finally brought to its knees is the one that you remember about Pharaoh and the Egyptians, about how they, God sent plague after plague to the Egyptians, and they still didn't listen. And then finally Pharaoh says, get out of here. And he still didn't give up. He still sent his army in to the Red Sea after, after the Israelites, and then God devastated the whole army by drowning them in the sea. Joel is sounding the wake-up call. 
Sometimes it takes a lot for us to wake up, doesn't it? You know, it's interesting. We have numerous ways to wake up in the morning. We have the beep, 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 the alarm that goes off, and some people maybe get uh, woken up by soft, gentle music. My dad was a morning person. I don't remember a time when he used an alarm. He just was up like at 5 o'clock in the morning. And when dad and I farmed together, he called me like at 6 o'clock in the morning and he'd say, aren't you up yet? Because he could tell I was in bed. And he'd say, half the day is shot. You know, he'd say, get up out of bed. Judy has a, a way of getting up in the morning. She uses like three alarms. I'm not kidding, three alarms. Starts like at 4 o'clock in the morning or something. I don't really hear them. I don't pay attention, but... And then she finally gets up. She likes to wake up slowly. And then she says, Honey, time to get up. That's the first time. Honey, time to get up. Fourth or fifth time it's, Honey, get up. And I could hear it in her voice. Her frustration rises with her frustration with me. Well, God is frustrated. And he's having Joel push the alarm. And he's saying, wake up, because the day of the Lord is upon you. Then, after Joel's got the people's attention, he writes in chapter 2 what the people need to do. He calls the people to repent. First, wake up, then repent. Again, he doesn't specifically say what they are to repent from, but only that they need to repent. So let's turn to Joel chapter 2, Verses 12 through 14. Joel 2, 12 through 14. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? What does Joel mean when he says to rend your heart and not your clothes? I think what Joel means here is that back in, that, in those biblical times, back in that day, um, when something tragic happened to the people, they would literally tear their clothes when they were in great mourning. But here Joel is saying that the, to the people, don't tear your clothes, tear your heart. I think he's telling the people that they shouldn't just make this an outward show by tearing their clothes for all the people to see and not really mean what they're doing. But here they are to tear their hearts, which is an inward action and display of true repentance. How many times have you yourself or you've seen it in somebody else when they say, I'm sorry. And, and you can just tell, you know, I'm sorry. You, they didn't mean it or you didn't really mean it, you know. It was just kind of that tearing of the outward clothes by saying, I'm sorry. There was no real commitment to change. Joel is encouraging the people to take action of true repentance Chapter 2, verse 13 said, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Isn't this really a wonderful scripture that teaches us about the attributes of God? He's gracious. 
merciful, slow to anger. And God does not want to harm us. He does not want to punish us. I think many times this is different thinking from our world. Many people get mad. They get mad at God and they hate God because they think he's ruined their, they think that he's ruined their lives. Sorry, folks, but as we learned last week in Hosea, sin has ruined our lives, not God. I hope you truly believe that's true. Joel is explaining here, it's never too late. Sure, you haven't listened to me up to this point, but it's not too late. You can change. You can call out to God. You can repent because he is a God of kindness, a God of mercy. We teach our Awana kids over and over. We teach this. Mercy is not getting what we truly deserve, like a punishment. And grace is getting something that we don't deserve, like God's love and his salvation in heaven. So mercy is not getting what we truly deserve, and grace is getting something that we don't deserve. God is a God of mercy, God of love, but he's also a just and jealous God, a God who keeps his word. Again, remember how Joel wrote, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Joel is communicating that God's had enough. Okay, had a line in the sand, and the people crossed over it. As a sub-teacher, I've learned to convey to my students when, where I stand and when I've had enough. I try to stick to that three strikes rule. Not three physical strikes, but three verbal strikes. Three strikes and you're out. So um, I give them warnings. And many times that warning will include a uh, threat of more homework. I've also learned that it's really beneficial to include the whole class in that. You know, they're all going to pay, which is called peer pressure. Sometimes it works. I'll say something like, Mark? I'm just going to use Mark for example. Nothing nothing against Mark. Mark, if you don't shape up, I'm going to assign chapter 15, questions 1 through 30 for the the entire class. Do you understand, Mark? You understand that this is going to affect the entire class. Now, as you can imagine, the other students start chiming in at this point, say, shh, be quiet. I don't want any more homework. I've got enough to do. Do I sound like a subteacher? <laughs> yes, God is a God of mercy and God of love, but he will only tolerate so much. Since Joel doesn't specifically address their sins, what they were, I think it's a critical question for us to ask is, how do we know what sin is? And how do we find out what sin is? Throughout the scriptures, we find God dealing, detailing what he considers to be sin. And probably the first one that comes to your mind is the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, all of those. But he also has... In Psalms 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalms 119, 9 through 12 says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking, we, taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart have I sought you. Oh, let me want, not wander from your 
commandments. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Here we read that God's word can teach us what sin is. However, not every sin is detailed in the Bible. It's not listed out like the Ten Commandments. So we read in 1 Corinthians 10.23 that says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And then verse 31 it says, Therefore, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is really deep stuff, but we need to answer that question. Well, you know, what is sin? Sin is doing something that is displeasing to God and does not bring glory to him. How do we find out what's displeasing to God? We read his word. We study his word. The Bible is our guidebook that reveals to us God's heart. And also God's Holy Spirit will work in our minds. He will help to guide us by giving us a conscience that will reveal God's heart. Please understand that when we sin, God will try to correct us. That's what Joel is talking about here. It's the same way we try and correct our our kids. Why do we correct them? Because we love them? Because we want to, to change them for the better. There's a ton of scripture that teaches this also. Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father in whom he delights. Joel is saying, wake up. Repent. Because God has had enough, and he's going to punish you for your sins. Joel is saying that correction and destruction, it's on its way. It's coming. But he's also saying, you never know. God relents from doing harm. He doesn't want to harm you, so repent. Does it work to repent? I think the story of Jonah proves that, doesn't it? We got Jonah who disobeyed God and got swallowed up by the big fish. And down in the belly of the fish, Jonah repents. He says, all right, I've done wrong, God. He repented. Fish spits him out on dry land, and then Joel goes to, or, uh, Jonah goes to the people of Nineveh, And he preaches to him, God is going to destroy you because of your sins. The king finds out about this and he tells all the people, put on sackcloth, cry out to God, cry out to to God for his mercy. And you know what? Lo and behold, God listens. And then it's kind of funny because God relents. Then Joel gets, or uh, Jonah gets kind of upset about it and He was waiting for God to send some fire down and burn them all up, but that didn't happen. To be totally honest, that's probably the way I would have been too. They deserve their punishment. But God is a God of mercy, isn't he? He listens to us when we repent. Let's not forget, God does punish those who sin. He's a true and just God. He will not tolerate with sin. 
If we are sinning, God sooner or later will attempt to correct us. Why? Because he loves us. No different than mom and dad trying to correct you. Repent, for the day of the Lord is upon you. Okay, the message has been kind of dark and depressing up to this point. And I don't think any of us enjoy being called out for our sins and especially paying the penalty for our sins. So we need to read on in Joel's book because, you know what? It gets better. Here comes the good stuff. Here comes the stuff of hope and life. We read in Joel chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? You catch that? How can a day be both great and terrible at the same time? I think it's, the day is going to be great for the people that are his children, the children of God, the children that are reverently following him as Lord and Savior. However, I think it's going to be a terrible day for those who have not followed God, that are not his children, because they're going to find out that he is a God who will keep his word. Friends, when the Lord returns, it's going to be an unbelievably great day. We get small glimpses of this when some of our friends, some of our loved ones, they move away. We don't see them for a long time. We get on a plane and we go and see them and we hug them. Isn't that great? That's so wonderful. It's even better when they come back after deployment and we get to hug them. So just small glimpses of what it's going to be like. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to meet Jesus? Personally, I think God is going to give us a bear hug. I'm going to give an give a example to you so that you have a picture of this in your mind. Auntie Dodo, my Aunt Doris, every time we'd see her, she, she'd come up and she'd give us a great big hug. But it wasn't just a hug like this. It was a hug like this. She'd shake it kind of like that there. And say, oh, I love you. I missed you. I love you. I miss you. 37 years. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> So I think that's what it's going to be like. He's going to say, I love you. Oh, it's good to see you. All I know, it's going to be a, a day about God. It's going to be a good day. It's going to be about God, not about me, not about you. It's going to be about God. As Pastor Evan said last week, we are going to be judged Joel chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 says, Let the nations be awakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes, In the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The name Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. I think you can look at the scripture in a couple of ways. There's no doubt that the valley of decision means that God is going to decide. God will determine who will live with him 
eternally and who will not. However, I think it can also be used to spur us on as people to make a decision. Choose this day who you will serve. Make the decision. Friends, please understand this. God will not be mocked. God will not tolerate an unrepentant heart. If you're sitting here today in this congregation or if you're listening to this on the website, in the internet, and you know that you're not right with God, please turn. Turn to God. Rend your heart. Tear your heart before him. And not just your clothes. Plead for his mercy. This is between you and him. This is nothing to do with anybody else. Nobody else can do this for you. Only you. Joel 2.32, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Guys, there's, there's going to be a judgment. The day of the Lord is going to be great, and it will be terrible. It's going to happen, and we need to be prepared for it. Here's some closing scripture for you. We're going to skip to Revelation. It talks about that. Revelation 20 Verse 11 through 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in those books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades were delivered up, and the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, everyone, everyone is going to live forever. You either have your name in the book of life and you will be going to live with God forever in heaven or your name is not in the book of life and you will be cast into the lake of fire. It's up to you to, to decide. Rejoice, for the day of the Lord is upon you. Rejoice, because God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins that you might have eternal life. But you need to make the decision to accept that gift from God. You need to choose to make him as your Lord and your Savior. You need to choose to follow him. You need to choose to pray to him, to read his word, and live for him. Once you've, got, you've accepted God's salvation, that's just the beginning. Because after that, you have to follow him. The battle against sin will not end here on earth. The battle against sin continues every day we live till we die. We need to read his word and follow the Holy Spirit and continue every day to repent from our sins and turn from our sin. Because we're all sinners, right? None of us are perfect. Then lastly, you can live for the day of the Lord is upon you. So here's your sermon notes. Jeff, you got them up there? Okay. Wake up, for the day of the Lord is upon you. 
Repent, for the day of the Lord is upon you. Rejoice, for the day of the Lord is upon you. And then live, for the day of the Lord is upon you. Joel is kind of a small book, kind of an obscure book. But it's a powerful book that teaches us and paints a great picture of who God is and how great and merciful he is. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful mercy, your grace to us. And Lord, if there's someone here that has not accepted you as their Lord and Savior, don't let them rest. I pray that you will work in their hearts even now, that they accept your gift of salvation. And Father, for, the, for us that are your children, Lord, I pray that we will continue to evaluate our lives, that when we are sinning, we will repent and we will change and we will try our hardest to follow you, Father. Thank you for being a, a merciful God. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.